an exploration into loneliness through listening, hearing, clicking, and touching begs us to look inside ourselves to answer the question, how do we solve loneliness? The book, Seek You, A Journey Through American Loneliness. The author, Christian Radke. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! And this is Kari. And you're listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama. So Kari. Yes. This book goes into a bit of detail about the laugh track. Oh, yeah, it does. Did you know about the laugh track before reading this book? Actually, even after reading it, I'm still not understanding um, some of it because I think a live audience has to be present to first record the track but then you know how some shows from back in the day will say shot in front of a live studio audience so they don't have a laugh track right but she mentions friends they do. and Frasier and I was like oh, I've been lied to I, n- I never yeah. watched friends but I did watch Frasier and I yeah. thought that was in front of a live audience so what you gonna tell they, me but they are in front of a live audience but they guide them they guide them. Have you ever seen those um, flashes? I've sat in in California. We went to some show and there were like applause signs and they'll yes. hype you up to, yeah, to uh, make more noise and sh- and laugh harder or whatever. But this sounds like something different. Like they're recording the audience and then just playing it back post-production. Mm-hmm. Yep. Add it where it needs to be added. You guys didn't do a good job the first time. Yeah. If them jokes don't hit like they need to hit. Yeah. That's right. That's right. So that leads us to our theme of the week, um, readers. Each week, we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book we are reading. And this week's theme is some of your faves use a laugh track. What? (laughs) If you say Martin, this is the end of this show. Laugh tracks are pre-recorded or live audience laughter designed to provide on cue engagement or laughter. The laugh track was created because a sound engineer didn't trust the audience to laugh at the right time and to give an at-home audience a feeling of community. Um, The laugh box, which is um, a precursor to the laugh track, was invented by sound engineer Charles Douglas. So the creatives hated the laugh track, whereas the -the behind-the-scenes folks felt it was absolutely needed. That makes sense because when you're acting in a scene, you need all that live engagement. Whereas in post-production, you just want to make sure the final product comes out the way you want. You don't really care about the art of it all. Exactly. So one of the reasons that I came across um, that the laugh track actually stopped is because of the international community rejected it as a tool. Um, some Latin American Latin American production companies avoided using um, recorded laughter, and instead they hired professional laughers who filled the comedic silence. You could do that. <laughs> <laughs> Please pay me; I will do it. Mexican and Canadian productions sometimes added um, the laugh track if their series were being sold was being sold in the U.S. Um, so the laugh track is there. It exists. 
Now, let's find out which shows used laugh tracks and which did not. So I have about four shows and I'm going to describe the name of the show. And I want you to tell me the name of the show and whether or not it had a laugh track. You said you're describing the name of the show. Did I say that? I meant to say I'm going to describe the show. Okay, got you, got you. And I'll tell you the name. Okay. Yes, and you tell me the name and whether or not they used a laugh track. Okay. (laughs) I love when a game come around. Yes, (laughs) I am ready. What's the prize? Again, you just get to be proud of your knowledge. Okay. How about that? Wow. Whatever. (laughs) Okay. This show has four single women sharing a house in Miami. Golden Girls. Yes. (laughs) Did they use a laugh track? Yes. Why do you say that so easily? Oh, because it's an older show, I just assume. Although they don't need it because them jokes hit. Story behind that. They didn't rely heavily on it because by the time Golden Girls came out, they were using multiple cameras and capturing different angles so they could then capture the joke and the reaction to the joke. And so they didn't have to rely on it. And people were laughing, not just at the joke, but at the reaction. So they were catching a lot more with these multiple cameras. This is a good point, because with the laugh track, um, it was necessary also because you're shooting the same joke in multiple angles. So once you yeah. hear the same joke three times, folks don't be laughing like they were the first time. It but ain't if, funny no more. <laughs> but if you can <laughs> capture the laughter from when it first hit and then uh, just apply it to whatever angle you want, that's better. So, okay. Yeah. All yeah. right. I got mm-hmm. you. And that's an oldie but goodie, is mm-hmm. it not? Yes. All right. Let's see. Our next show. A middle-sized town in central Indiana called Pawnee. And it's... Um, oh, Parks and Recreation. Dang. Oh, they okay. did not use a laugh, laugh track. And I'll say that because it's like newer. Also, it's a one camera angle thing. So they really don't have... To, once the joke hit, that's the shot. They don't have to keep shooting it. Also, it's not in front of a live studio audience, is it? Maybe it is. So, no, it's not. Because there's no laughter in the show. Wait. I'm confusing myself. The answer is they did not use a laugh track. (laughs) You are correct. They did not use a laugh track. I love your reasoning. I love your reasoning. Okay. So how about this show? A black family raising children in Los Angeles. I don't watch shows uh, based in Los Angeles. They don't interest me. Not at all. Oh, a lot of our listeners are from California. I love where y'all from. (laughs) Correct yourself. They're the only right people in California where you are. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, I don't know this show. What's the show? Uh, Keeping up with the Kardashians. (laughs) Oh, you said a black family. Well, some of them. (laughs) (laughs) The father is a lawyer and the mother was a professor. I don't know, girl. Rock. Remember The Rock? <laughs> yeah, the show. Yeah, I love that yeah. show. But I don't think they were in he California, was a garbage were they? man. No, I don't know. Just tell so, me. So I'm not. I'm going to give you another chance okay. to guess. It should be easier. Clue. Four children and a cousin. The Fresh Prince? Yeah. He wasn't a lawyer. And she's not a professor. What was he, a judge? <laughs> 
But yeah, she, but she was a professor. Yes, okay. and he was a lawyer. So first of all, light skin Aviv did not have a job. Light skin Aviv didn't, but dark skin Aviv did. But she really wanted to be a dancer. So yeah, he's a judge as far as I know. But maybe he okay. started as a lawyer. That makes sense. Yeah, all Fresh right. Prince. And they had a laugh track because some of them laughs would be off. It'd be like, mm. um, Carlton, you white as rice. And then the audience go, ah! <laughs> and you be at home like, everyone calm down. It's like, it's not that funny. It's not funny. I haven't oh, paid but, attention. But maybe both, because I do remember some laugh out loud scenes that felt more spontaneous. So maybe it's like the Golden Girls where they use both. Yeah. By that time, again, different camera angles. So they were working that out. But yes, indeed, they did use a laugh track on um, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Don't you hate when it's always that one audience member that wants their voice to be heard and something happened and they go, what? Longer than everybody. I I think that that would be me. Okay. (laughs) Get them out of here. Extended laughter. Extended laughter. Okay. So final one. I need your thoughts. Okay. All right. This is a show about everyday work life and it's kind of mockumentary style. The Office. Yes. Did they use a laugh track? No. They don't even have like a audience laughing in it like that. Yeah, it doesn't make sense, right? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They did not use a laugh track. So we at home can feel some familial connection to the show and keep watching it. So it's all manipulation. Yeah. Community. You you feel a sense of community with that as well. Another show that had laugh tracks was Seinfeld. Now, <gasps> I believe too. that thoroughly because that the first episode rough it was the not first three funny. episodes oh i said what show am i watching <laughs> and why am i this watching this is but not I the actually, funny and i also, actually felt that way about parks and recreation too yeah that's a slow burn mm-hmm. um what were you gonna say i was gonna say uh it was also too much of jerry's stand-up which I didn't like until I was old and grown. Oh, interesting. interesting. So yesterday, just yesterday, I started liking Jerry Seinfeld on the stage, but none of them jokes from Seinfeld when he's working, when he's at work and he's a uh-huh. stand-up comedian. None of those are funny. Oh, I love So that. I think I... at his shows, they have a laugh track at his Ooh. actual <laughs> show life. Wasn't <laughs> that low down? That's what she said. Okay. I, but I enjoyed them. Not all of them were funny, but not all everybody is funny all the time. So I get it. If it's your job, I don't. <laughs> everybody is not funny all the time. It's just not possible. Some jokes hit, some jokes hit, and some jokes don't. Well, you got to practice at some point. Kevin Hart been practicing his whole career. Go ahead. <laughs> and then different audiences. Uh-huh. You know, different backgrounds can, if we, you know, if there's no familiarity, why are we laughing? So it just really yeah, depends. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot that goes into that. Get niche. Yeah, you're right. You're right. So listen, do you think they still use laugh tracks today? I do, because um, everything is just so fake today. Why not? <laughs> yeah. So like um, this show that I came across, you remember the show How I Met Your Mother? 
Oh, yeah. I never watched that, though. But mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, they had a spinoff and it's called How I Met Your Father. And they use a laugh track in that. And guess when that show came out? January of 22. Oh, this so year? They, yes, they oh. are actively using um, laugh tracks today. Okay. Okay. So maybe so it produces like a nostalgic feel now also like. You know, it's probably really just cheating. It's <laughs> cheating. It's cheating. Yeah. It it's is. probably it's something cheating. deeply wrong about it. As we'll yeah. soon discuss. So mm -hmm. thank you for we'll enlightening us. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we take a quick break before we jump into our author and context? Sounds good. So, Kari, yes. now that we're back, what can you share about the author and maybe some context about the book? So our author is Kristen Racky, and I want to start with a quote that she includes at the beginning of this book, CQ. She says, studying loneliness for me has been driven in a small way by a desire to find a solution to its problem, a way for each of us to swim toward a once ledge and reach for it. So, uh, end quote, uh, Kristen is someone that battles off and on with feelings of loneliness. Like who doesn't, um, just to give you some knowledge on her. She was born in 1987, June 25th, 1987. And do you know? I, oh, Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wisconsin. <laughs> Green Bay, Wisconsin. In fact, uh, she's oh, a writer wow. and illustrator. Now living in Brooklyn, New York, very talented. She did the illustrations in this book and wrote the contacts. So chef's oh, kiss. Oh, I didn't know she did the illustrations. That's pretty yeah. cool. She's a true artist. Really, really cool. Um, she's also the associate creative director of the tech news website, The Verge. Uh, she has an MFA from the University of Iowa's uh, nonfiction writing program. She's received honors, grants. Um, awards. Her work has been nominated for a Penn Jen Stein Award, an Eisner Award, the Kirkus Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal, and numerous National Magazines Award magazine awards. Her comics and writing have appeared in the New York Times, uh, Harper's, Marie Claire, The Atlantic, Ellie Vanity Fair, Elle Ooh. Vanity Fair, Vogue, and many other places. And um. You know, she's relatively young. That's all I really have on her. But she's yeah, she's a talented writer and illustrator. Mm, that's good. I'm glad to hear that. That is pretty impressive background and acknowledgement. So thanks for sharing that. Now let's hear a brief synopsis uh, without spoilers before we dive in. A silent killer lives amongst us and is everywhere. I've met him. So have you. So is everyone you know. Still, we prefer to pretend he doesn't exist. Hello, loneliness, my old friend. This is your story. Seek You brings to light the shameful parts of the human experience, namely our relatable need to touch, converse with, and receive recognition from the people around us. From the birth of the laugh track to what we choose to post on social media, she breaks down in Seek You how we pacify ourselves when this need is not fulfilled 
And Raki asks, what is necessary to form the connections that feed us? Alexis, what were your first thoughts of CQ? Well, I was a bit confused. <laughs> I'm like, CQ, I don't, I don't know what that was about. But um, yeah, and then I, I read The Journey to Loneliness and I'm like, I, I still don't know what that's about. <laughs> what are we talking about here? Yeah. What is this book about? So I didn't know. Um, so I was interested to to find out more. Um, yeah, that's my first impression. That's definitely my first impression of this book. Who do you think would enjoy reading this book, Kari? Yeah, if you um, love nonfic that's told in an illustration form, almost like a comic book, then I think you'll love this. You know, if Persepolis was your jam, um, this is a little different in that it's not a biography of sorts, but it is kind of it's like the biography of loneliness in America. Yeah. And I know when you first started this book, you was like, oh, this is depressing. This Mm -hmm. is a book you kind of have to mm, fight the fight through maybe in the beginning. And we'll talk about that, of course, in the verdict. Uh, but it becomes something different as you get deeper into it. It's like yeah. a biography of loneliness. It is. You, you're right. In a way, it is a biography. And so, then she yeah. talks a lot about herself. So, yeah, um, she had some relatable her stories in mm-hmm. there as well. So are you ready, Kari? Yeah, I'm ready. This is going to be a little interesting. I don't know how this is going to go, but. Let's talk about it. A deep dive into Seek You by Kristen Radke. So um, I'm going to break down certain parts of this book and you and I can just discuss those readers. Hopefully you were able to pick up a copy. Um, It's really well done. The illustrations are in color and they're really artistic, um, thoughtful, um, imaginative uh, expressions. So uh, even if you don't read the words, the illustrations themselves are very interesting. Um, In 2020, of course, with COVID, we all, a lot of people, I won't say we all, but a lot of people met loneliness in a way they hadn't before. So we all experience loneliness sometimes when everyone's hanging out and you weren't invited and you get a little, you know, fear of missing out and you're like, dang. Alexis has no idea what I'm talking about, but that happens to you guys sometimes, right? (laughs) Were you like, wow, Beyonce really had this renaissance party without me. So um, (laughs) you might feel a way. Well, in 2020, a lot of us had time to feel that way as we were forcibly isolated from our jobs, from our loved ones, and even from our family. Um, So this book came right on time for a lot of people. And it isn't trying to say when loneliness began in on earth, (laughs) because there's always been loneliness. But there is now a pervasive spirit of loneliness that has never existed before. Loneliness is now at epidemic level where it's actually taking lives. It is spreading. It is contagious and it is um, prolific. So this is a different type of loneliness that we're facing today. And she begins the book by pointing to um, the wealth of our country. This is American loneliness, um, what it means to be lonely in America. So the wealth of our country and also our isolation from each other. Um, So before World War II, um, people A lot of immigrants, for example, formed communities where they knew people from back home and they were all connected. Um, Former slaves came through um, through the Great Migration 
or their their generations um, came through the Great Migration or, or remained in the South, had children and formed communities, tight knit communities where everyone knew each other. As that lifestyle faded, specifically for a more um, affluent white America, then loneliness started in this in the way that we're experiencing it now. Um, so solo living is a mark of a wealthy country. It's easier to avoid or delay marriage altogether and delay childbirth, which I'm mm-hmm. doing actively um, when you have the money to do so. And it's odd because yeah. you have the money to raise um, kids, right? To form a family. But if you got the money and the freedom, usually you just take your time or you don't want to do that. Right. So as a society. So um, when it's more possible to afford an apartment for one person, and you come home and all your stuff is where you put it when you left. Why wouldn't you hey, do that? Hey, <laughs> why not? Why not? <laughs> but that Get into also, it, folks. <laughs> uh, that also means that toward the end of your life, you'll find yourself in a s- similar apartment like that again. And yeah. you may outlive those closest to you. Like, that's the goal to outlive everybody we know. Isn't Bleak. that the truth? <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I'm signing up for that one. <laughs> Not that I want my friends and family to die. No, okay? you just want to outlive them. That's all. <laughs> so evidence points. Oh, ooh, I feel threatened. Evidence points to the fact. <laughs> evidence points to the fact that those who feel socially fulfilled. Guess what, Alexis? They live longer. Yeah. But there's a caveat to that. If you live alone, right? Well, a lot of people think that, okay, they tuck that um, fact away in the thought that, okay, but if you fall in the bathtub and no one's around to help you, that's how they dying. (laughs) And then they cats eat their face. No, No, honey. It's and not- then I don't know if you're going to go into this, but then she said, if you eat, you enjoying your food a lot too much, you ain't got nobody to tell you to put it down. So what Alexis is saying is some studies believe and we shouldn't say that she says because she does bring out a lot with scientists. A lot have of research. Said, mm-hmm. And you can agree with it or not. But scientists have said if people aren't judging your portions, <laughs> you going to have higher portions on your plate and not feel bad about it and you're going to die. So you need some. Somebody to say you're going back for seconds. Mm. <laughs> Why do you Another need somebody slice of cake? that says that? Mm. <laughs> so that nagging mama you got, thank her. She gonna help you live longer. Mm-hmm. So, but but actually, that is not necessarily true. What it is is not how we're living when we're lonely, and being single doesn't make you lonely. By the way, that's not at all what she's Please saying. Please insert that with a big old. An asterisk. In fact, most lonely people I've heard are married people who feel isolated from their partner. So it's not about the act of living as a single person. It's about mm-hmm. how you feel when you're lonely. Your feelings have tangible effects in your life. So how you feel when you're alone? No, no. When you're lonely. Because being alone can be a beautiful thing. I know mm-hmm. you and I both enjoy moments of alone with ourselves. But those times when we are alone do not necessarily produce feelings of loneliness. Loneliness right. is craving the um, social fulfillment that you get from 
um, someone recognizing you, truly recognizing who you are, considering your thoughts, your feelings um, on this earth. That's what that is. So we all need that. And there's nothing to be ashamed of. However, we love being ashamed about it for some reason. (laughs) When you're lonely, you feel not just shame, but if no one wants to be around you, you're a loser. And that means no (laughs) one likes you. This is what your brain tells you. You're you're feeling lonely. That means no one likes you. (laughs) No one on earth. Billions of people. They all hate your guts. That's what your brain tells you, your subconscious. So loneliness lives in the gap created by the relationships we have and the relationships we want. So our desires, which is why social media plays such a big part in feelings of loneliness, because you may have all that you need to thrive, to survive. But is it what you want? Listen, can I say this? You know, sometimes Instagram will do those little surveys and they want your feedback and whatnot. And they were like, did you have a wonderful time? Um, did this help you gain friendships or something like that? That'll be one of the questions. And I'm like, I don't think I'm on Instagram for friends. I just want <laughs> this. You not asking me the right question. I'm not the right person for this survey because I am not on social media for friendship. So I get in there and I I love to engage with people. I love to watch their stuff and comment, but I'm not looking to go behind the scenes and get a best friend or get a friend. And a lot of people feel the way you do. However, that doesn't mean that we are not subconsciously influenced by people posting the best parts of their lives. Mm -hmm. When you are at your lowest or you don't have the funds maybe because money is um, freedom, right? In a way, if you don't have the money to look the way you want to look, Okay, to go where you want to go and you see other people doing that, then subconsciously it's real relatable that you would feel a little bit of loneliness, whether you recognize it or not. And hey, Cambridge <laughs> Analytica, Alexa said, get all up in her mention. She don't get, care. get all the businesses. Okay. Okay. So um, <laughs> the author, back to our book, spent her 20s dating many people, often simultaneously. Okay. She was in them streets. Um, when a partner would complain that she was reserved or unavailable, in her mind, she was like, ooh, I gotcha. It felt like a rush (laughs) because they couldn't see. They didn't realize how needy she actually was, how much she craved attention. And that was the goal to stop people from realizing who you really are because of the shame. Mm. Okay. Wow. So that's the first of a few sections in this book. And I'm going to title that we're lonely because we're successful. Next, we'll move to the laugh track. And this goes in line with our theme of the week, which Alexis brought out so beautifully. Post-World War II, America saw a rise in new housing development, suburbs, and cul-de-sac living. And this isolation from a larger community boosted the popularity of television entertainment. So there was money to be made in loneliness. Ooh, I don't like the sound of that. I don't like it. I don't like that. And soon the laugh track was born and the laugh track um, functions by coaxing a solitary viewer. You at home with your snacks, your oversized portions that no one has stopped you from eating. (laughs) 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 Your cigarettes, because apparently if you're lonely, you're going to smoke. According to some studies. Um, (laughs) And, you you know, you you hear this audience laughing and you want to laugh with them. You want to be a part of it. And that gets you connected to the show. 
on a level that is past entertainment. Those are now your friends. And you look forward to seeing them every night at seven. That's interesting. That's really interesting. Yeah. Um, And it makes the viewer feel like they're not alone. The scenes in television shows are often reshot, as we said before, to get the camera angle just right. And live audiences can't laugh at that same joke 10 times. So that laugh track was created to make sure that when the joke hit, that laughter was as strong as it was supposed to be. Um, And it spoke to a real part of who we are as humans because laughter precedes language for us before Mm -hmm. we can talk babies can laugh humans are 30 times more likely to laugh when they are grouped than when they're alone now i laugh by myself all the time but i'm crazy because sometimes i I do be like why am i laughing so hard by myself like but it don't matter that's the best that's the best laughter if i'm reading a book and laughing or if i'm watching a tv i just love to laugh it's like the best thing to do ever (laughs) but i will say when the best um thing for me is when i'm not um i don't find something humorous and someone's laughter (laughs) makes me laugh especially if it's inappropriate don't let nothing terrible happen everybody just mad and then somebody just start laughing you be like, oh, you know what? We're going to be okay. Or you get angrier. <laughs> but whatever. <laughs> the brain releases endorphins when a person engages in social laughter. So when we're laughing together, you just getting high as a kite off the laughter. Sometimes I feel it like, oh, my goodness, I'm euphoric. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> um, and that suggests that it, it builds um long-term relationships laughter helps us to do so and it makes us feel good and we want to do what feels good again we always want to do that so we want to laugh repeatedly so they Mm -hmm. threw that laugh track in there to get us connected to television on a psychological level creeps they got me i tell you i don't know sometimes the tv be laughing by itself i'll be like this ain't even funny y'all that's probably when i was watching how i met your mother i don't even remember seeing that show that don't even sound like a funny title. Next. I lonely, know people who love that show. Yeah, no, it's really popular, right? So lonely moments of friends and acquaintances. So um, when Kristen said she was uh, told people she was writing this book, everyone had something Mm-mm. to say about mm. their loneliness. Alexis is struck in the heart, her Mm-mm. empathetic self um, by these people's accounts. And I just want to read some of them. Oh, do So you? some people, mm. yeah, just three. Some people were kind enough to share the loneliest moments of their life that they can remember. Do you remember the loneliest moment you've ever felt or when you felt your loneliest? I absolutely do not. I couldn't even take myself to one. I think I blocked too much out. If I was yeah. lonely, I, I don't even remember experiencing We got to cope, right? We can't be storing that in our long term. Uh, for, nope. for more information on long term memory, <laughs> go back to that wild card show <laughs> about memories. But moving on. So this is one of the ones I wanted to share. Um, And this is from Emily. It actually struck me the hardest. So Emily says, when I was seven months pregnant and in the hospital after a fight with my then boyfriend, he'd repeatedly punched me in the stomach. And afterward, I couldn't feel the baby moving. So I feared she was dead with nowhere to go. I called my parents at 4 a.m. and begged them to please let me come home. I told them I was sorry for getting pregnant at 17 and shaming them. I told them I would do anything they ask short of giving up my baby. If only they'd let me come home. My dad said, you got yourself into this mess. Now get yourself out before Mm. he hung up. 
That was the loneliest she's ever felt. Um, there's another here I want to share. We left Iran when I was eight. We spent a year in Dubai and then were sent to a refugee hostel in Italy, which was kind of made out of the carcass of an old hotel. Some guy came to pick us up from the airport and he was very official looking. He only spoke Italian. He dropped us off at the top of this big winding hill. At the hostel, there was this one room with a bed and all three of us, my mom, my brother and me shared it. I remember that night we didn't have anything to eat and we were really, really worried. Once we arrived in America, there was another similar feeling of total disorientation. By that time, I was 10. The first night we were sleeping in the attic of the people who sponsored us. Everything was different. The weather was different. It was very humid. I was hungry in the middle of the night and I didn't feel like going down to get anything because it wasn't our kitchen and the food was all strange anyway. Mm. That struck me because I'm so young, eight years old and 10. And then lastly, um, there's something so pitiful about this. Um, And yes, so relatable. Like I've had feelings of loneliness like this. So um. Living in Masula in the six or seven months after college, I worked the night shift at a big downtown coffee house. The last thing I had to do one night was transfer a large gallon bag of vegetable soup from the crock next to the register to the fridge in the kitchen. When I lifted the bag out of the crock, the bag just sort of disintegrated and the soup went everywhere on the floor behind the counter. I got down on my knees and put a rag into the pool of soup to start cleaning and I felt an electric kick go up my arms. Turns out the soup had gotten into an electrical outlet. It wasn't strong enough to actually hurt. So I just kept wiping the soup up, getting little shocks. And I knew when I was done, I'd walk home in the freezing cold and go to bed alone. Oh, so sad. Um, Some similar ties through these three stories. The person in them didn't do anything wrong necessarily. Mm Um, especially like cleaning up vegetable soup at your job. It's such a mundane thing, but it can produce feelings of loneliness in, in you, especially when you're getting shocked and no one's there to care for you. And you don't have time to care for yourself because you got to work. Mm, and then you got to walk home and go to bed in the cold all alone. Boo-hoo. And, and this one, just to give you a pick me up. Please. Oh, God. <laughs> I planned a birthday party in seventh grade. Only one person came. <laughs> That's so funny to me. That's so funny. Let that go, sir, ma'am, sis. But that, but that was just the loneliest moment. In your life. Was, if you've had a great life. <laughs> there you go. That's all that means. He had lived in America. Okay. <laughs> People are like, well, I didn't know if my baby was alive. Well, I, I had a birthday party. Only one person came. <laughs> Anyway, that person's experience and you cannot take it away from them. I'm judging. Now, moving on. The cowboy lie. Now, this Mm. has been studied in thesis after thesis and think pieces after think pieces. It's this idea, the romantic idea of the cowboy. Where have all the cowboys gone? Hmm. They they where they at? So the thing is, in this country, in our real history, the reign of the cowboy was halted by the invention of barbed wire, ending the era of free range cattle. Really practical. okay? a ranch was filled with manual labor and livestock. And that's not sexy. 
So it doesn't fit <laughs> the real marketable image of the free, uh, sweaty man that does what he wants when he wants, you know, everywhere he wants. <laughs> so I don't know where that came from. Blanche Devereaux. Oh, that's not really Blanche either. So the fictional cowboy character was created and he's still in the DNA of American culture. Above all else, this fictional man, and he has to be a man, is free. He can have anything he wants. And even if his life is filled with divorce after divorce, excessive drinking, bouts of depression, it's okay. Because it's implied that he can come back from the bottom when? Anytime he wants. Because he's smarter than everyone else. He's brave and he's free. He's a cowboy. Very, Very interesting. Politicians who adopt this character win. And television shows featuring this character are praised. It's Las Vegas. The city of Las Vegas embodies the cowboy lie. Because Vegas is like very lonely and um, sad when you really look at it. (laughs) Uh, But but don't look at it too much. It's lights, brights, uh, fun. Okay, freedom. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Yay. Right. It's Don Draper. Okay. And by the way, Don Draper is a character who um, is like the opposite of any man sitting at a bar who's never been approached or everyone he approaches rejects his advances. That ain't Don Draper. Don Draper (laughs) is depressed. He's living a lie, but he is free and to be admired. Truthfully, though, rejection can elicit in us a fight or flight, you know, hormone that's real. So when that hormone builds up and sticks around, when we are constantly feeling rejected, um, we may get to the point where we no longer are open to developing a relationship at all with anyone. We're like, why? And we can start to imagine rejection before it happens and everyone becomes a threat. I want to really apply this to the violence, the unexpected, inexplicable, inexplicable violence we see oftentimes in our country and even in our area. When everyone is a threat, who can you have empathy for? Who can you care for? If everyone, remember, your mind is telling you you're lonely, so everyone hates you. Everyone is a threat. So you hmm. got to get back at everyone, even if you never met them. They wouldn't like you, so you can't care about them. That's what loneliness that sounds do. terrible. Not part of the group. So let's dive a little deeper into this. In a study, participants who'd made who were made to feel left out showed less brain activity in the areas responsible for executive control than those who were not excluded. So being part of a group makes us feel in control of our lives and our actions. We feel responsible for what we do. Those isolated were more willing to elicit pain on strangers, even those they knew hadn't personally wronged them. Mm. Listen to this, Alexis. The less one interacts with others, the more likely they are to build narratives around themselves that reinforce an impulse toward isolation. Ain't that um, the lonely one seeks his own selfish longing? That's the first thing that came to my mind. (laughs) So, you know, you feel lonely. You feel isolated. Let's stay that way. This is safe. Be your own friend. I hate people. It's really, really fashionable to hate people and to be antisocial. We've been Mm -hmm. guilty of it. Mm -hmm. We are actively guilty of it often. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Antisocial. Yep. Mm -hmm. It's no good. 
So loneliness draws us to the worst possible conclusions. As a measure of control, a government can even induce loneliness in its citizens. Why? Control, girl. So tell them everybody out there, they're against you because you're the best and everybody wants to be the best and they're not. So they're jealous of you. (laughs) If loneliness can cause us to lose a sense of what is real, how do we function within a country that's constantly telling us who to trust, what we should trust, who can be trusted? Don't trust the news. It's fake. Listen to me. I'm real. Mm. You know? So, Radke recalls, during childhood, the TV spat sensationalized stories about the country's quick decline into quote-unquote gangland. Every intersection brimming with black and brown boys and baggy pants. Old footage shows dozens of news networks fighting to keep ratings up on a hyperbolic cocktail of racism and terror. Racky explains, my mother's anxieties were misplaced. There were no reports of gang violence in rural Wisconsin, despite, except the Packers, that's a gang. Um, <laughs> despite, despite the whispers about men waiting beneath cars in the East Town Mall parking lot, primed to slice unsuspecting ankles with razor blades and speed oh off in goodness. your minivan. Oh my goodness. She goes on to say, What my mother and the news both failed to recognize was that the real gang violence that ravaged the 90s preyed on its most vulnerable children, who were rarely the same children the country seemed interested in protecting. The programs ignored their contributions to public pressure for a wave of mass incarceration that would isolate America's young men more than they'd ever been before. When news anchors reported on faceless preteens desperate to belong, they were also reporting on a fear of the vulnerability that loneliness can create. Without a community to keep them in line, the segments seemed to say good kids could go bad. The media's portrayal of loneliness or insecurity as a gateway to gang violence was as misguided as its characterization of many mass shootings today. So uh, many mass shooters, excuse me, end quote. So often mass shooters are described as what, Alexis? Loners. They're loners, lone wolves, mm-hmm. almost cowboys. Mm-hmm. Mm. The audience can then translate that to if he's a loner, he's not one of us. He's an outsider. Mm-hmm. And this provides a measure of relief. Who, you know, I can never be anyone in my family because right. that person was a loner. And no one is ever lonely in my family. None of us battle loneliness because that's shameful. The collective branding of mass killers is a clumsy act of self-preservation. Iraqi describes how this characteristic could not be assigned to Paddock. Remember in Vegas, ironically, Mm -hmm. Um, Paddock, who shot up a crowd in Vegas at a country music festival, I think. He had a brother, he had a girlfriend, he had a community, and the media stopped talking about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he didn't fit the mold. He, he did didn't not. fit the mold. It was unsettling, okay, to say that, the least. Because that means anybody. That could be anybody. Right. It's too close to the truth. Mm-hmm. Racky expresses her opinion in this way. To arm ourselves is the most extreme form of separation um, I can imagine. Because to move through a life without weapons is another way to remain open to the world and its mercy. Let's move on to social media. Yayoi Kasama. Y'all, I've been guilty of standing (laughs) in line for these. And Yayoi, if you know anything about her, 
I don't know if we should be supporting her like y'all. I don't know. So I'm, I'm taking a selfie in one of these infinity rooms. I've done it. Okay. Um, last time I was in the Bronx, I even went to the um, botanical gardens because she had a few box installations there. And, you know, if you want to know what I think about that, please go to Chicago Wings on Instagram. That's in my latest uh, New York tour whatever. Anyway, so Yoyoi Kasama, she's an artist who saw the world as unlivable. She would have hallucinations where um, objects would be melting in front of her. So she carved a niche for herself in a section of a psych hospital where she spent nearly half of her life. She's still alive, by the way. Mm -hmm. She's like 90 something. Mm -hmm. Really, I mean, again, to use the word prolific as an artist, she made art to critique those self-obsession, which she saw as people just so consumed with their own image, their own thoughts, their own selves. Now her art, particularly infinity mirrors, are extremely popular among those dying to take a what? A selfie. A selfie. The irony. How much of social media really represents us when this is what we do? How much of it is a distraction, a distortion? Oh, and then she um, in this book, she brings up an example of a woman who tweeted her husband died before the woman even told her kids. She she sent she she was tweeting as if the world was her friend saying he hasn't come home yet. It's getting late. Then there was news of an accident on television. She tweeted, it's him. He's dead. She didn't she, know it was her husband at first. At first, no. But she was tweeting like you would tweet a friend. And that's where social media was in her life. That's the mm-hmm. place it took. That's the and place. She, she did tweet it but that he was dead before even having that conversation with her children, which is something you might do. Uh, with a friend or close family member just to get your bearings on reality before you confront your children with this terrible news. She took it to Twitter. Uh, I think that later that night she said, oh my God, guys, um, I have like a thousand followers now. And people mm-hmm. were just disgusted. So it was mm-hmm. okay when she was the victim. <laughs> but now that she was getting followers and power, people people were like, <laughs> <Not> power. <laughs> This tragedy is no longer a tragedy. On to the next. She had 1,300 followers over. She went from 567 followers to over 1,300. Hashtag in shock. She tweeted this. Just another reason I don't like Twitter, someone said. Hashtag get a life. This woman just wants attention and donations. Oh, and more Twitter followers. So. Ooh, people are harsh. Mm -hmm. That's social media. Yeah. The beautiful isolated woman. So we talked about the cowboy, which has infiltrated almost every part of entertainment in our culture, in American culture, I should say. Um, But his counterpart, gender wise, would be the beautiful isolated woman. This is a character waiting to be married. Always female. She's waiting to be married, to be promoted for her life to start. Oh, yes. For her life to start. That's real. She is lonely. Mm -hmm. She is lonely. She doesn't have that freedom that the cowboy has. She is outwardly, visibly, uh, just obviously lonely. She's a princess. She's beautiful. This is part of how we got wrapped up in who we think Princess Diana was. She had this hideous husband 
who didn't show her the love <laughs> that we deem she deserves. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is our beautiful, isolated woman come to life. Loneliness. Lonely babies. Okay, this is our final part. What a sad way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Listen, you guys, I'm going to read a section of what I'm calling uh, lonely babies. And it's about parenting. So parenting throughout the first half of the 20th century was dominated by the doctrine that the biggest threat to children was their parents. own <laughs> parents' affection. Stop kissing your kids. This is what they said. This is what the man said. So, uh, yeah, babies got sick, infections spread, and then babies died. And the best way to stop that invisible crawl was by eliminating illnesses, most common carrier, other people. You don't want your baby to be sick. Stop being around your baby. Uh, Look at that mama holding her baby, nursing her baby sick. Orphanages and hospitals lined cribs in neat, sterile rows. Attendants were instructed to limit their contact with children. And by children, we mean babies. Hours old. If you must touch a baby, (laughs) make sure you wear gloves. Gloves. This is what they were told. Gloves. Gloves. Never sleep. Transactions. Yeah, I mean... So you you've heard maybe don't sleep with your baby because you might crush it. Well, they said don't even sleep in the same room with your baby. The baby might know you there and it, it'll turn soft. <laughs> we need strong American babies. Oh, people. Just terrible. <laughs> Too much coddling, John Watson announced, would make your kids soft winklings. And we can't have that. Wait, your kiss of affection is the germ of infection. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. parents said, okay, I'll stop hugging and kissing my kids. Parents what? did this. What? what makes a parent decide <laughs> that this person's insight is fitting for their life? What? Why? Who yeah, are so, these people? <laughs> she also mentions here. So listen, y'all, for the sake of science, people did some really horrible things around this time. And I had to to look up some auxiliary um, studies, one being the little Albert experiment. Are you (laughs) familiar? Yeah, I started looking it up, but I was like, let me stop. This is too much. So please. (laughs) The little Albert experiment was a controlled experiment showing um, evidence of classical conditioning in humans. John B. Watson, who we just quoted, and his graduate student at Johns Hopkins. Johns Hopkins. Not Johns Hopkins. Oh, Lord. Oh, no. Oh, this is really keeping up trouble. That's why I don't think what they did to Henrietta was necessarily racially motivated because they was doing stuff to a lot of people. To everybody. But anyway, their goal, Alexis, was to create a phobia in a child. That did not have the phobia to begin with. So they took a baby. Now, how they got this baby is up for debate. Some people say a wet nurse worked at the hospital and was afraid that she'd get fired if she didn't give up her baby for this experiment. And they weren't taking the baby indefinitely. They just want to um, ruin them a little bit and give them back. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, what they did was gave this baby a rat. Yeah. Yeah. Y'all know. No, I know what you're thinking. It wasn't a stuffed toy. It was a rat. (laughs) They gave this baby a rat and told him, here, play with the rat. And so the baby was like, gaga, goo, goo. I'm playing with the rat. (laughs) 
Then they gave the baby, they took the rat away and gave the rat back, but made loud, scary noises. And the baby said, ah, ah, ga, 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 ah. And then they (laughs) took the rat again. (laughs) Then they kept doing that to the point where they wouldn't make the noise. They would just give them the rat and the baby would freak out because it associated this rat now with loud, scary things. And that became this rat is just scary. But Mm -hmm. unexpectedly, that fear translated to other furry things. And the baby just became afraid of anything with fur. (laughs) That's terrible. And I was like, great. Our experiment is over. Here's your baby. Although some people say the mother stole the baby from the scientists and was like, we out of here. I know y'all was doing all this to my baby. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So it worked in that uh, they gave the baby the phobia. However, the experiment did not follow modern standards of scientific experiments. Like there's only one person you studying on. That's not that don't count. Yeah, that's you that's need multiple a- subjects in a controlled environment. Duh. They just want to be mean to a kid <laughs> and they can have funding. Yeah, <laughs> it's crazy. People paid them. <laughs> so anyway, uh, once people stop touching their kids, good news, infection rate went down. However, babies was dying more than ever. Apparently, we Left need to right. be touched to live. <laughs> yeah, knew? we do. Oh, all you have to do is look at the animals, <sighs> which they did. Now let's talk about Harry Harlow. Alexis, mm. would you like to read a section of this for us? Oh, sure. Harry would go to college and become a scientist, landing a job at the University of Wisconsin right out of school. Bored by the banal study of rats, so unexpressive, such tiny brains, Harry began visiting the local zoo where he became acquainted with a pair of chimps. He watched them play and tease each other, engage in nonverbal arguments and cold shoulder their partner in a way that reminded him of his own marriage. Why study rats then when there were these animals, one so seemingly human? Monkeys were hard to get in Wisconsin in the 50s. They'd show up sick or dying, inconveniently rattled in cages shipped from warmer climates. Harry would have to breed his own. He enlisted his graduate students to help convert an abandoned shed on campus into a makeshift primate lab like a scrappy overlooked ragtag group of thinkers in a feel-good movie. Among those students, it's worth noting, was Abraham Maslow, who would go on to create Maslow's hierarchy of needs. But the monkeys they raised in cages didn't act the same way the mail order monkeys did. They rocked their bodies back and forth, wrapping their arms around themselves, staring straight ahead. They sucked their thumbs. So, if monkeys that were raised alone, rarely interacted with or touched, exhibited so many behavioral problems, Harlow wondered, what was happening to the human babies upon whom doctors were prescribing distance? Harlow and his team began his most famous study, separating baby monkeys from their mothers shortly after birth. The babies were placed in cages with two inanimate doll-like figures, one made of wire, one of cloth. Both dolls were heated internally by a light bulb and only the wire version dispensed milk. The cloth mother's face was framed by two bicycle reflectors in place of eyes. Not realistic exactly, but slightly more cheerful than the square robot-like head they affixed to the top of the wire mother. 
If babies truly only clutched their mothers because they wanted food, as was commonly believed, of course, they'd prefer the wire monkey that fed them to the cloth version that contributed nothing. But the monkey spent almost all their time clinging to the cloth mothers, sometimes straining from them to reach the bottle affixed to the wire mother while keeping their feet planted on the cloth or jumping to the wire just long enough to drink before rushing back to their maternal perch. Plush fabric is a more comfortable resting place than woven wire, but the monkeys did more than hang out on the soft figure the way they would a bed or a blanket. They cuddled into it. They ran to it when they were startled, and they sometimes stroked the cloth and the edges of its plastic face. When scientists reached in to change and clean the fabric, a partition separated the baby from its inanimate mother, and the babies hurled themselves against the divider, manically tracing the lines of the cage in jacket panic. They'd grown dependent on a parent who never returned their affections, and it led to a kind of addiction in which they were incapable of functioning without her. They tore out their fur, biting their arms and legs. But attachment isn't necessarily love. How much the monkeys really care for these unliving figures, Harler thought, was still up for debate. So he created new models to mimic abuse. One that convulsed roughly. Spikes popped out. One that shot out freezing bursts of air. The babies clung even tighter to the mother's design to push them away. Harlow was a man who quite literally proclaimed the power of love. When he presented the early findings of his surrogate mother study at a conference, another scientist continually interrupted him. Certainly, when you say love, what you mean to say is proximity. Harlow responds, it may be that proximity is all you know of love. I thank God I have not been so deprived. To make such a statement risks discrediting Harlow completely. Such a statement, then, must have come from someone who truly believed in love, who lived it, was driven by it, and gave it freely. But I can scarcely find evidence that he showed the love he publicly pronounced to anyone in his own life. He certainly displayed no affection for the animals he studied. When Harlow returned to Wisconsin after his hospitalization, he was done studying maternal bonds. He was harder, his colleagues said, a little more detached, but hypnotized by his work. He talked then about wanting to study isolation. He built solid cages in which monkeys could be observed through a one-way mirror, and he placed a baby inside each box alone. Their only stimulus, sometimes for an entire year, was the researcher's hand ascending from above to change their food and water. These were the monkeys who starved themselves, who were cornered in the playroom when they rejoined their colony. One monkey fainted when he was finally, for the first time, touched. Back at the University of Wisconsin, Harry Harlow had a crop of monkeys broken down by lacking touch. How, he wondered, would these isolated animals fare as parents? The monkeys held in those isolation chambers since birth, had never observed normal primate behavior and were unwilling to mate. His team built a contraption that hold 
female monkeys down in a mating position, strapping her to metal slats. Then he let the male monkeys loose. Harry called it his rape rack. After the monkeys gave birth, he wrote, Not even in our most devious dreams would we have designed a surrogate as evil as these real monkey mothers. Most mothers ignored their babies, unresponsive to their prodding for attention and food. One monkey held her baby's head in her mouth and crushed his skull with her teeth. Another pushed her infant's face into the floor and chewed off his hands and feet. Beyond the walls of the lab, Harry's second wife was dying. His drinking got even worse, and he still wasn't satisfied by the experiments. This is when he built his vertical chamber apparatus, which, to his colleagues' dismay, he called the pit of despair. Monkeys were placed at the bottom of the enclosure, which was shaped like an upside-down triangle, and at the top was a window through which they could look out and perhaps escape. They climb up the sharp incline to peek out the window, then slide back down, climb up, slide down, climb up, slide down. But they could never make it all the way to the top. Within days, they stopped trying. They curled themselves into a corner at the bottom of the pit. This, Harlow thought, looked like how he felt. A personal metaphor one of his colleagues called the alignment between Harry's studies of depression and his state of mind. A perfectly happy monkey would go into the pit and in less than a week come out incapable of interacting with any other animal. He called a chapter of the study many years later, the hell of loneliness. So yeah, creepy. Yeah, so very Harlow, creepy. <laughs> Harlow was a miserable individual who divorced his first wife. After the second wife died, he married the first wife again because she was there. Um, and he needed somebody. Okay, he was lonely. Also, um, he like had addiction issues. Um, mm-hmm. Psychopath. If you tell me he had bodies in his basement, I'd believe you. Uh, for no other reason than the cruelty he inflicted on these poor monkeys. Cruelty. <sighs> the hell of loneliness was an upside down triangle where he would give them the hope of getting out at the top of the triangle. One monkey who's at the bottom could see. Perhaps the sky. He could try to get out until he realized there was no hope. And then he'd just sink into despair, curl up in a ball and die. And they would just do this over and over again to the poor animals. After Harlow's death, a student called his work, quote, offensive to anyone with respect for life. End quote. Fine, yeah. Racky hypothesizes that Harlow's work was born from love. He proved that love is not a distraction or a pedestrian label slapped into action, but that love is the action itself. In every monstrous act, she continues, there was also a person so desperate to understand the circumstances of his sadness that he spent decades creating it over and over until he himself reflected back. So he wanted those monkeys to feel, to to be what he felt inside. My argument is leave the monkeys where they at. Mm. (laughs) No, no, no. This was not born from love. And that's that. That's loneliness. That is seek you. Oh, okay then. Uh, The author does finish with thoughts about her own loneliness and how it's just something you live with, you live next to, and you, you still exist. 
you know, it comes, it goes. Um, yeah, but that's that. Uh, should, should we, we take, take a break? I think so. Let's take that break. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Alexis, what did you think of Seek You and would you recommend this book? You know, Seek You um, kind of reminds me of a Malcolm Gladwell type book. A lot of interesting information. Um, yeah, just a lot of interesting information. What are you going to do with it? I don't know. It's just good information to have, I guess. Um, when I first started reading this book, I was I was like depressed. Just the first three chapters got me down. And then to culminate in the reading of people's personal stories about mm. their memory of a lonely experience, I was outdone. I couldn't read this book not a minute further. So when you were um, thinking that about this work, you were listening to it, right? I was Without listening to it. Without the illustrations. Mm-hmm. I think that's key because the illustrations go hand in hand in making this more edifying than depressing. So I think you really need both. Just listening to the words, especially I think I would think the ending when they, she starts talking about these studies and what Harlow did to these animals. I don't know. That's too much just to listen to for me. And it was a lot just to listen to. But when I did pick up the book, I could see how it was a little softer to the touch. But listening to it, have that compounding on you. I was like, am I, the, am I lonely? Should I be lonely? Maybe I need to take on loneliness. <laughs> I should own loneliness. <laughs> this, this is... This is what my experience was reading this book. I had so to y'all come don't through notice. the fog. <laughs> Alexis just want to do the hot new thing that everyone else is doing. So she read this and was like, oh, is loneliness it? We lonely. <laughs> we out here lonely. I mean, we in here. <laughs> so if you like this information build stuff, just the stuff that... um. Malcolm Gladwell does, then yeah, I would encourage you to read this book, but don't listen to it because you might go into a depression. <laughs> Look at the artful work and read the Comic Sans writing. I don't think it's Comic Sans, but the lettering, <laughs> the font in the book, it, it lightens it up, it, not minimizing it, but it makes it much lighter than just listening More to it More digestible. Definitely more digestible. So, yeah, I, I would recommend it to those who like um, Mac, Malcolm Gladwell um, type books because um, it's a lot of information just that you just learn about loneliness and how it developed over the over the course of the American way, I guess. So, yeah, I would recommend it to those people. Kari, how about you? Would you recommend this book? What's your final verdict? I think you hit the nail on the ha- head if you like those um, works. I will say um, Kristen is different in that I, I actually really love Malcolm Gladwell's um, projects. I like his books for the most part. I've read two or three of them and I like his podcast revisionist history. Oh, but really he has good. a habit. Yeah, he has a habit of taking studies and um, from those um, extrapolating 
larger, broader ideas that he applies to a groups of people. And that can be tricky because um, what's good for the goose is not necessarily good for the gander. So um, just because something can be said um, in this one study or with one group um, doesn't mean we can necessarily take that information in all cases, of course, and apply it to a broader uh, field or a broader group of people. CQ is not doing that. CQ is taking loneliness and acting as if it's a person and telling its life story um, as we as we know it today. This very specific type of pervasive loneliness um, that is common in generation, according to studies, uh, Y and Z. Um, this type of isolation where you're surrounded by people and alone and lonely um, inside. So I definitely didn't feel down until I got to the monkeys. That's just so disturbing. So people uh, you know have monkeys, finding. yes. Wait, so people know monkeys, yes. Okay. Okay. Ugh, so gross. Um, yeah, people fine because you're not... The, <laughs> What what happens to people happens to people. Unfortunately, it's not one person inflicting terrors on a per on another person. Uh, so yeah, that's why the monkeys disturbed me more because that it. didn't have to happen. Got it, got it. Um, but actually, the loneliness that the people expressed, I enjoyed because it was just so relatable. Some of those stories. I mean, being the last one at work and cleaning up and getting shocked and no one caring about you, you walking home in the cold. That's so relatable. A version of that has happened to me. Hmm. So I think I so, tried to um, insert myself, but I, I don't think it happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't want to have a party and one person came and it was me and I ate everything because no one was there to guard my portions. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I really love this book. Again, it's a great one to have out on your coffee table. If someone picks this up and just reads three pages, that they'll get from it something a little nugget that will be edifying and i think that's great so yeah and the illustrations are just extremely well done she's so talented yeah i would highly recommend it i'll say actually this is up there i enjoy it i like opening this sad book and reading it sometimes <laughs> um yeah i enjoy it a lot but the mm -hmm. artistry the illustrations you're, you're right they're really great they're really mm -hmm. great mm-hmm that's fantastic. Okay, so Kari, what are we reading next week? We are reading A Pure Heart, a novel by Rajia Hasib. And if you can, readers, please read this one before next week's show. All right. Thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting with you next week, Thursday. Lit Society is brought to you by me, Alexis Anaria, and Kari Herrera. Support the That's cause me. by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts, along with a comment about why you absolutely love us. You can also stop by Spotify and leave a five-star review there as well. We love you. Yes. If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society. Visit LitSocietyPod.com for show notes, this month's book list, and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next time, readers, read something. Read something.